0: Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Today we're joined by John Pico, acclaimed author and keynote speaker on customer and employee experience, as well as founder of Watermark Consulting. John has been featured everywhere from the New York Times to Forbes. His latest book is called From Impressed to Obsessed, 12 Principles for Turning Customers and Employees into Lifelong Fans. In this episode, John shares his passion for customer experience and reveals why every business should be just as passionate about it. He shares his insights into why more companies don't take customer experience seriously with what he calls a variety of indignities, like long call center waits and hidden feeds. We also get chatting about something called memory shaping and its implications for how businesses engage with customers. Oh, and somehow Elvis comes into the conversation. So without further ado, ado, let's go over to the the studio studio to to talk talk to John John Pico. Pico. Thank Thank you very very much. much. John, you're very welcome to Inside Intercom. We're delighted to have you. It's great to be here, Liam. Thank you very much. So I suppose, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself, your journey to this point? What kind of got you here into, you know, customer experience consultancy?
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, my entree into business was actually selling radio advertisements door to door. Uh, This is back in college. The college I went to, they had a commercial radio station on campus. So it was run by students, but didn't receive any funding from the university. It was all ad supported. And sophomore year, I went in and I said to the station manager, I'd like to be a DJ. And, you know, he was like, yeah, great. But if you want anything other than the graveyard shift, you need to bring money in. And so I started selling radio ads and actually ended up being pretty good at it and became sales director of the radio station the next year. But that was really where I first got my taste of customer experience because what I saw is how very subtle aspects of the interaction that you have with a prospect or a customer can materially influence their likelihood to work with you. So something as simple as, The formatting of our rate sheet for our ads, you know, that made a tremendous difference what that looked like in terms, you know, whether it was crisp and clean, easy to interpret. And so that's kind of what got me interested in business and customer experience. Um, From there, you know, I went to business school, worked in the corporate world for about 15 years and had really the fortune of working in lots of different functions, IT, sales, marketing, service, distribution. And then launched my own firm in 2009 because I thought I had a very unique perspective having walked in the shoes of all of those different functional leaders. And as you know, delivering a great customer experience really requires all those functions to coalesce around the same vision. And so, yeah, that's kind of my journey. What kind of music did you play when you were a DJ? <laughs> so I hosted the Sunday night Oldies show. Every Sunday from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. Now, back then, oldies, as I defined it, was 50s, (laughs) 60s, and 70s music. So all the classics, you know, and yeah, I still love that music today.
0: Brilliant. I love it.
1: Now, what's funny is that that was actually a show (laughs) that was on a college radio station that was focused on alt-rock but because I was bringing in all the revenue, they had to they do you know, let whatever you. I wanted. So, you know, in the middle of this alt rock sort of sea, you've got this oldie show. Um,
0: so it stood out. Yeah. Oh, I love that. So let's get into it. I, I suppose let's start by, you know, talking about this provocative opening line of your new book, which is that, you know, if you're a- aspiring to satisfy your customers, then you're aspiring to mediocrity. And That seems to contradict a fundamental business tenet with which we're all familiar, namely that customer satisfaction is key. So why should we all rethink that?
1: Yeah, you're right. It definitely contradicts something that we're all taught whenever we go into business. But I guess what I would say is I think customer satisfaction is a one-way ticket to the business graveyard. And the reason I say that is because if you're just seeking to satisfy your customers, then you're not really leaving an indelible impression on them. And when it comes to cultivating loyalty, that really is an exercise in memory shaping. The companies that do this well recognize that they're not just in the business of shaping people's experiences, they're in the business of shaping their memories, because it's those memories that are really going to drive the repurchase and referral behavior that is the lifeblood of any thriving business. So if if you want to capitalize on that opportunity, you can't just satisfy your customers, you need to impress them. And by that I mean you're leaving an indelible impression in their heads that's going to shape their future behavior. And so that's why I say satisfaction is really not the appropriate goal for any business.
0: So this book, you know, from impressed to obsessed that you've written, it's a great book. What compelled you to write it in the first place? Something that
1: always bothered me. Was how companies subject customers to so many incivilities, you know, from long queues and uh, wait times on the phone and hidden fees that you know kind of surprise you uh, at, at point of sale, and you know, just people that are generally unhelpful and don't do what they say they're going to do, and. I look at all of those incivilities that companies put customers through, and I would say to myself, you know, there are so many easy, simple, straightforward things that organizations could do that would help elevate the quality of the experience that they deliver to folks. And, you know, so I almost feel like it's, it's on a moral level, like companies just should not be treating people so poorly. And, you know, I had this book banging around in my head for like literally a decade. And it was just a matter of carving out the time to write it. And it was really just based on everything that I've collected in my career, corporate career, as well as my career leading Watermark Consulting, of how do companies do this? How do they leave those indelible impressions that cultivate that loyalty? And again, it's just there's so many things companies can do that are low cost, in many cases, no cost, And I just wanted to get that on paper and share it more broadly so more people could take advantage of those secrets.
0: Something we always love to ask on the podcast is when we're talking about customer service and support is what people see as how do they define it themselves? I mean, so I I suppose what do you think the difference is between customer experience and customer service? So I think customer service is but one component. Of the customer
1: experience. And I think that's a very important thing for an organization to realize. If 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 you as an organization use those two terms, you know, if you view them as synonyms and, and use them interchangeably, I'd say you're going to be in a really dangerous path. And the reason I say that is because if you're just focused, if you're just thinking about traditional customer service, and by that I mean, you know, the text, the chat, the telephone contact center, that's all well and good. But the fact of the matter is that. Oftentimes, the mere need for customer service indicates that there is some broader issue in the customer experience. And so it's not just about figuring out how do we deliver service better, it's about how do we make the need for service go away entirely. And to accomplish that, you really need to think more broadly about the end to end customer experience, meaning you're going all the way upstream to the marketing of your products and services the sale of them how expectations are set the design of your physical products the installation instructions that come with them these are all things that most people would never characterize as traditional customer service yet i would say you know you're 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 missing an important opportunity as a company if you don't think broadly that way because you should in most industries you know i'd say the goal should be everything works so beautifully so perfectly upstream that people never have a need to contact you unless it's to buy more of your product, you know, or or something like that, some revenue generating activity. So I think that's one of the key differences between customer service and customer experience.
0: In the book, you have this great analogy kind of describing a great customer experience as being like a beautifully choreographed performance complete with onstage and backstage components.
1: Yeah, I I love that that analogy, you know, which I mean, others have used it. and But the reason that I like it is I think what every company strives to do is elicit a reaction from its customers comparable to that of an audience in a theater after watching just a spectacular stage performance. Because think about what happens after that performance, the audience, they rise to their feet. They applaud. They give a standing ovation. They don't even want to leave the theater. You know, they're just so enamored with the experience they've had. And eventually, when they do leave the theater, they can't wait to tell other people about what they just saw. And so if you take that theater analogy a step further, I think that there is an onstage component to the customer experience and there's a backstage. And by onstage, I mean all the things that your customers, your audience can see, feel hear, touch, and smell. It's your retail stores, it's your product, uh, it's the live people they're interacting with. And you know that's where most people's heads go, I think, when they think about customer experience. But then there's another equally important piece, and that's the backstage piece. And by that, I mean everything that happens behind the curtain that while invisible to your customers, nevertheless exerts a material influence on the quality of the performance that can be delivered to them. And I'll give you an example of what I mean, how you hire and select people. That is totally invisible to your customers, that process, right? But you could easily see how, if you're not hiring the right people, people that have sort of the customer experience gene already, no matter how much you train them, you're gonna put them out on the stage and they're probably not gonna deliver the kind of performance you're hoping for. So how you hire people, how you measure and reward them, the tools that you give them to do their job, you know, and I know that's something that, that I'm sure is is uh, central to your audience's interest, you know, given the nature of intercom, the, the notion of all the tools that you give your frontline to accomplish the job and to deliver a consistently great experience to customers, that's all the backstage stuff. And if you're not surrounding them with the right tools, with the right backstage environment, when they go out on, on onto that stage,
0: forget it. The performance is not going to be what you hope it is. Exactly, and you know, on stage fright. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the business case for customer experience. Many customer experience transformations can be expensive. It's not always easy to measure the direct result. What would you say about that? What would you? What insights would you offer on that?
1: Yeah. So you know, going back to to, to my history uh, and when I first started Watermark, actually, even before I started, it, one thing that always challenged me in the corporate world was. I felt that executives and and boards of directors, they often took the leap of faith on a lot of big, costly initiatives that had questionable ROI. Uh, You know, for example, the hiring of a celebrity CEO for tens of millions of dollars, embarking on some merger or acquisition. I mean, if you think about it, these are all things where it's kind of sketchy whether you're actually going to get the ROI. But routinely, companies just take the leap of faith. Yet when it came to investing in the customer experience, suddenly I, I found that executives and, and top leaders they sort of like you know rein in the, the pocketbook they like they're like get the pencil out, let's sharpen it. let's make sure that you know we account for all the investments and, and all the benefits. And that always bothered me and I think that in my view it reflected sort of this deep-seated skepticism about whether customer experience really mattered. And you know, corporate executives will talk the good talk and you know, they'll say, "Yeah, it's important." But in many cases, I think it's kind of corporate window dressing. It's like good annual report copy. And so when I launched Watermark, my own consultancy, it became even more important to persuade people that this actually mattered, you know, and that there was an ROI. And I remember very vividly, it was uh, the first year I started the firm, and it was Christmas time, and I was just racking my brain. I was saying, how do you persuade people, executives in the corner office, that this actually has a payback? And I I realized, you know, you got to speak in the language they understand. And what most of these executives understand is the language of shareholder value. Whether they're a public or a private company, they understand what that means. And so I said to myself, you know, wouldn't it be interesting to look at the, the shareholder value? shareholder return of companies that excel in customer experience versus those that are not good at it. And that was the origin story of what's now called the Watermark Consulting Customer Experience ROI study, which is one of the most widely cited analyses of its kind. And it's updated every couple of years. And the latest version, which is in the book, has 13 years of data. And it's just really remarkable when you look at the contrast. The companies that excel in customer experience outperform the ones that don't by an over three to one margin in shareholder return. And to me, that is the exclamation point on the case, the economic case for customer experience. And the book, of course, dives into what drives those economics. And I think what's important for your audience to understand is it's not just about revenue. You know, a lot of companies, they get hung up on how do we quantify the ROI of customer experience because additional revenue from it is so hard to put your finger on. And that's true, but there's a whole expense part to the equation. You know, we just talked about the idea of doing things right upstream so that you obviate the need for people to contact you downstream. You save money when you do that. It puts less stress on your organization. So... I think that there is very compelling evidence out there about the ROI of customer experience. I hope that what I put in the book helps to advance that cause, but it is definitely not soft and intangible. It is very real and you can take it to the bank.
0: I think in the book, you mentioned kind of these variety of indignities that companies kind of subject customers to. We're talking about, you know, long call center weights. Retail stores that are sparsely staffed, hidden fees, all of that kind of stuff. Why don't more companies take customer experience seriously? Well, I think part of it is
1: that they're skeptical of the ROI, just like we talked about. So they choose not to invest in it. But the other thing I would say that is a big impediment is I think many companies look at their customer experience through rose colored glasses. You know, there's a very famous Bain and company study that was done some years ago where they went out to executives. They said, how many of you think your company delivers a great customer experience? 80% of the executives raised their hand and said, yep, that's us. And then they went to the customers of those companies and asked them the same question. And only 8% of the customers agreed with that conclusion. So there's like this huge chasm between the view of the executives and the view of the customer. And when executives think, yeah, things aren't all that bad. You know, we're doing pretty well. We've got this covered. What does it translate into? It translates in them into investing less and focusing less on actually elevating the customer experience. And I think that's the, the other impediment to people focusing on it more and, um, you know, accepting some of those indignities that you mentioned.
0: So if you're a company and you've got a constrained budget and you want to offer a better customer experience, how can you go about doing that? You know, it's going to cost more to do. Yeah. For those companies that are in that
1: situation where, you know, you are cash constrained and you're like, how do we fund this? In that case, I do recommend that the way you approach customer experience, at least initially, I'm not saying exclusively, but at least initially, is through that lens of how do we actually reduce the need for people to seek our support? Because that is the most easily quantifiable lever for actually self-funding customer experience initiatives because you can very easily say hey you know if we are able to take 10% of our calls or 10% of our chat sessions and you know just kind of take that off the table people don't need to contact us anymore we can quantify pretty well what that means in terms of the expenses in our organization in terms of our ability maybe to redirect those resources to higher value activities And so that would be my recommendation is, you know, you want to ask yourself, a lot of companies, for example, track what do people contact us about? But what they should really be tracking is why do they contact us? Not, oh, they contacted us about billing or they contacted us about installation. That's not really actionable. What you want to know is why did they contact you about billing? Why about installation? What was it that triggered them to need help? And then, you know, you sort of want to pull that thread and follow it upstream and say, oh, you know what? We got a lot of people that are obviously getting confused with this this paragraph in our installation instructions. Let's modify it. And once you do that, inevitably, you're going to see an impact on the number of people that consequently are contacting you for help. And so that would be my recommendation for companies that are like, how do we self-fund this? Uh, I think that is the best way to do it.
0: In your book, you know, you talk about how customer experience is really an exercise in memory shaping. And so can you explain what you mean by that, and you know, its implications for how businesses engage with customers?
1: Yes. So the companies that do this well understand that what they're trying to create are experiences that people don't just enjoy in the moment, but remember fondly long into the future. Uh, for all the reasons I mentioned before, in terms of the repurchase and referral behavior. And so there is a science around memory shaping, you know, that's been very well studied. And for example, you know, it gets to just how the human brain remembers things. And we don't remember things as like a streaming video. It's not like we remember every frame in the experience. And then we've got some algorithm in our head that looks at the number of frames that were pleasant versus the number of frames that were unpleasant and calculates whether or not we're happy and satisfied. That is not how it works. The way our memories work is we actually just remember the peaks in the experience, the valleys in the experience, and the last part of the encounter. And so when it comes to engineering customer experiences, that has really important ramifications for your strategy. You know, on the one hand, it means you actually don't have to be perfect at every touch point. You could actually make a conscious strategic decision to just sort of be okay at a particular touch point, as long as it's not one that's, you know, tremendously important to your customer. But at the same time, you want to make sure that you're creating some more and higher peaks, and that you're eliminating or uh, valleys or making them less deep. And that you're always thinking about the last part of the interaction, which is so important, given what's known as the recency bias in psychology, you know, you could do everything great, sort of in all the parts of the experience, but then if the last part of the interaction is really sour, that's it, game over. You know, people are gonna walk away with a negative impression and a negative memory. And so what the book talks about is, uh, you know, in addition to explaining that memory science, it actually lays out a bunch of approaches for how do you create more and higher peaks, fewer and less deep valleys? How do you end on a high note at the conclusion of every interaction? And you know that's really where the science of customer experience I think comes into play. You know, this isn't just about service with a smile. There is a whole science to this that that the companies that do it well are very adept at.
0: The title of the book references the idea of turning like not just the customers but also employees into lifelong fans. So how do customer experience design principles apply to a company's relationship with their employees?
1: Yes, I'm I'm so glad you brought that up because, you know, that subtitle in the book was chosen very deliberately. And the reason is that if you think about it, the very things that foster engagement between a customer and a company are not all that different than the things that foster engagement between an employee and an employer or an employee and a leader. And what I mean by that is it's things like, are you responsive to me? Do you advocate for me? Do you communicate with me clearly and transparently? Do I feel better after I have interacted with you as compared to before? And because of those parallels, what you actually find is many of the same techniques that beloved consumer brands use to engage their customers can actually be used to engage and strengthen loyalty with employees. And you know, I'll go back to something we were talking about earlier with um, the backstage piece. And, uh, you know, the notion of making it easy for your employees to deliver the experience. One of the principles I talk about in the book is the notion of making it effortless for your customers, but also for your employees. You know, we as human beings, we like the path of least resistance. You know, we are lazy creatures at heart. And so if it is easier for us to buy this product, to understand this product, to buy it, if it's more accessible You know, we're going to go there before we go to something that's a more complex route. And that helps to engage us. But similarly, with employees, if I am in a workplace where it is effortless for me to do my job, where I don't have to jump through all kinds of hoops and bureaucratic red tape, where I don't have to use archaic systems that just seem to, you know, compete against me at every turn, that cultivates loyalty in the workplace. That's a place where people are going to want to work because they know. I can be my best there. I can reach my potential. And so, yeah, that is a critical point that the book tries to make, is that the very same strategies that beloved companies use to engage customers can be used by leaders to engage their employees.
0: 100%. I love that. Listen, I can't let you go without asking you about AI and ChatGPT. What do you think its effect on customer experience, customer service is going to be? I know we're in the realm of speculation now. But... Yeah, I know. And I've listened to some of
1: your recent podcasts. I know you've been all over this and, and been talking about it <laughs> a lot. You know, I have to tell you, I approach new technologies with a healthy skepticism, because I do think that, you know, corporate history is just sort of filled with anecdotes of companies kind of getting drunk on the new shiny object, and it distracts them from the fundamentals. And it turns out to not be what they imagined. I have to tell you though, in the case of Chat GPT, I feel a little differently. You know, understand my background, my my degree, my undergraduate degree was in cognitive science. And I actually studied <laughs> the science of human language and how to apply that to computers. That was actually my the, the focus of my undergraduate thesis. So this is very close to my heart. And I have to say that this new technology is very impressive. And it's not one of those shiny objects that I sort of, you know, take with a grain of salt in the past. I really think there's something here, something here in terms of ease for customers to get information and interact with companies, but also potentially the ease of employees to do their job in terms of help me craft this message to this customer you know how do i articulate this or not even that just a, a help system like a knowledge base you know customers ask me for this what do i say what's the response the ability for employees to interact with a knowledge base in that way that's so much more natural to them and to get a response back that is almost packaged perfectly just to be you know uttered to the customer I think that could have a, a, a very significant impact. So yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see how things evolve with that technology.
0: Great. Well, listen, where can people follow you online? Where can they you know, find your book, keep in touch? Yep. So uh, the, the best place to go to learn more about me and the book is
1: uh, my personal website, which is johnpico.com. That's J-O-N-P-I-C-O-U-L-T.com. And uh, you can follow me on uh, Twitter or
0: Instagram at John Pico. Also follow me on LinkedIn. Listen, it's been great to have you here. Before you go, you got to give us like a 50s or 60s recommendation song to play just to get the energy going. You know, (laughs) I'll tell you, I'll give you I'll give you one that I think is very relevant
1: to the customer experience field. (laughs) And that's the Elvis Presley tune, A Little Less Conversation. I love that. (laughs) I love that song. And whenever I hear it, you know, I think from a business sense, there's so much talk. People talk and talk and talk. But then, you know, it's execution. Execution is what makes the difference. And so a little less talk, I mean, a little less conversation, a little more action. That's good advice for anyone in business.
0: I love it. Elvis, the, the uh, CS King. Yeah, right. <laughs> John, listen, thank you very much. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you, Liam. Good to be here. I hope you enjoyed my chat with John Pico. As always, you'll find a full transcript of today's show on the Intercom blog. The link is in the show notes. I'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. This is Inside Intercom.